What started out as a dream is now destined to remain a reality. One month that's brought together the biggest names in music and changed radio forever. Rocktober rocks out. Around Australia, John Stevens. We got Diesel. for Rocktober. And welcome to the fifth week of Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. That promo came from many, many decades ago. And that was the inspiration that started Robbo and I off on bringing back Rocktober. That was a promo for Radio Station we worked at. Robbo and I worked on all those promotions with all those artists. Mm-hmm. We thought we'd bring back just a little tad into the Mojo Radio <laughs> Show. Uh, it brings back some good memories, mate, doesn't it? It brings back some pretty big memories of long late nights. <laughs> <laughs> and bourbon. <laughs> and bourbon, yeah. Late nights, though, sitting in the studio with the guy who produced that, my mentor and my boss at the time, a guy called Jeff Thomas, and his work is still a massive influence on the stuff that I do for radio. Tomo. He's, yeah, Tomo. He's easily in the top five of imaging producers around the world. He's worked for guys like people in the US will know Howard Stern, people in the UK will know Cap. He's worked for both of those networks, a legend in terms of radio and imaging and all that sort of stuff. So good on you, Tomo, wherever you are, if you're listening. Now I'm going to show you how to make radio. For this, you'll need high-fidelity stereophonic sound. And also a bit of music. And then, of course, mojo, baby, yeah! This one I made earlier. If you are in a studio and you do want to focus through long nights, how's this for a Sedgway? Uh, 
Mate, I've been trying Siltep. Yes, you told me you were ordering it. I'm interested to hear how, what's, what's the new drug like. <laughs> I'm all jacked up, man, dude. I'm going to come across it. I'm going to come across a console and spider kick you. Ah, uh, dear. Can I, people, can I tell you that I've been getting text messages from Gary at like 5.30 in the morning lately? <laughs> it's amazing. I'm serious. It yeah. is. Yeah. Mate, get this stuff. It is, it is the bomb. And the backstory is last week we interviewed Ryan Munsey from Natural Stacks and they have a product which is a nootropic or what they call a smart drug. And this one's a natural form of nootropic, which is essentially is about brain enhancement. It's, a, it's about enhancing the software that runs your brain. And they've got a product called Siltep, which is specifically designed, it's all natural, and it's about mental performance. So it's for focus and memory. And, mate, I've, I've been on this thing now for a week, and I have mm. to say, what you notice about it is you are so intense on conversations. I've noticed that. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're so just locked in to the mm. other person and what they're saying. Mm. All the distractions go. And when you are working and doing deep work, creating, you just find yourself immersed completely in the work and all the distractions and stuff just drifts away. And if you are reading a book, you're actually in the book and the stuff you're reading seems to be going in. Now, it's been a week. It could all be a placebo effect. But Mm. I must say, I consciously find myself, stop myself going, wow, I really am in this conversation. I'm... I'm a fan. I uh, I love it. It's really good stuff. All right. You convinced me. I'll give it a whirl. Well, I just think in the studio, uh, when you are working late nights, you just take two or three tablets first thing in the morning, empty stomach, and it lasts all day. Yeah. But it's not a stimulant. Like, it's not going to keep you up at night. Mm. But you do find yourself, when I crash at night to go to bed and I read, I just find it so much easier to read, and the stuff you read seems to go in better. Right. Um, but it's not a stimulant. It's not an unnatural drug. It's just made from artichoke extract and forscolin, which are naturally found in by Mother Nature. Um, but I just think for you in the studio, you really would, uh, I think you'd get a lot of benefit out of this. Well, let's, uh, I'll, I'll order some and let's give it a whirl. It does enhance your focus. I'm not sure of memory yet because I haven't been doing it for long enough. But I've got to say, I loved the interview with Ryan Munsey. I just got pages of notes out of it. It was fascinating, wasn't it? Yeah, I do. And this natural stacks, the, the product range they've put together and how they do stuff. And I got to say, my go-to right now is a Siltep in the morning. Uh, some MC2 oil from Caveman Coffee in a Caveman Coffee brew. Mm. I got to say, that sets me up. I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew chip. It's a rock sober uh, cocktail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, there you go, folks. Nice one. To create the Mojo Radio Show Buddha Brew, we've taken some of the finest beans from world centers of religion. From the Middle East, we take coffee from Yemen. We added coffee from India, home of Hinduism and Buddhism. Then we added a touch of Ethiopian coffee from the home of Rastafarians and the birthplace of coffee. And we've packed it up with just the right yin and yang to pass on all the karma the Dalai Lama intended. The Mojo Radio Show Buddha Brew. Divination through caffeination. To get your hands on this full-bodied spiritual blend, just go to iTunes and leave us a review. 
Serving instructions. Keep drinking this coffee until you see God. God of rock. I've always wanted to say this. I'm drinking one right now. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of karma from the Dalai Lama. Absolutely. That's a great one. Thanks, AP. Yeah. I reckon that for the first couple of weeks of Rocktober, people thought we were taking the piss. They thought it was complete theatre right. of the mind. The coffee didn't exist. It's real, folks. It does exist. And we will be sending out a couple of bags to people who wrote some really nice comments for us. We had one from Western Australia. It said uh, from Tom Tom No, who said, if you're looking for that special something to lift your spirits and get the brain into gear today, you've come to the right place. Gary and Robbo interview some pretty inspiring people from all walks of life that have amazing things to share with us. Loving Rocktober, guys. Keep up the great work. Tom No, uh, Brew is en route. You leave a review, you get the brew. Now, folks, you have got one week left. At the end of this week, which takes us slightly into November, but nevertheless, yeah. never, let, never let the truth get in the way of a good promise. That's right. Uh, we've got some bags here. They're about 200 grams. We'll either grind it for you yeah. or we'll send you the beans. That's right. You cannot buy this stuff. Yeah. We've gone to all the religious capitals of the world. And I've got to say, what's really surprising is, the stuff's really good. I've had visitors to my house who absolutely love it. Yeah. So leave a review at iTunes under ratings and review. Leave us your details. We will get in touch and we will send the brew. If you have left a review for us during Rocktober, just go to our website, send us your address so we know where to send the brew. Absolutely. Can I ask a quick question though? Yeah. If there's any left at the end of the week, does that go into our personal stash? Uh, <laughs> mate, it goes into our prize cupboard. Oh, damn. I was going to say, just don't bother with your reviews then. <laughs> yeah. No, it, goes, it goes into the prize cupboard next to the soap or a room. Hi there. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I love the Mojo Radio Show and happy Rocktober, everybody. Robbo, to close Rocktober, we have Rock Royalty. We do have Rock Royalty, and for those people who don't know of Ivor Davies, here's your introduction. His name may not be instantly recognisable by some of our international listeners, but his music speaks for itself. Ivor Davies rose to fame in 1980 as the lead singer of Australian synth rock band Ice House. Over the next 20 years, he'd write nine albums, have some 25-odd songs in the Australian charts and numerous hits in the US and UK, including a Billboard Top 10 with Electric Blue. In 2006, Ice House was inducted into the Aria Hall of Fame. However, Ivor's talents have also made it onto the silver screen, with films like Razorback and Russell Crowe's Master and Commander being scored by him. The latter also scored him three international awards. Men must be governed. Often not wisely, I'll grant you, but they must be governed nonetheless. But his talents don't end there. Ivor has written the music for two acclaimed Australian ballet productions, Boxers and Berlin. 
He's also collaborated with artists such as David Bowie, Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, Brian Ferry, Elvis Costello, Simple Minds, XTC and Nick Kershaw. Yep, that's right. Remember this guy? In the late 90s, Ivor was also commissioned to write Circles in the Sky for the opening ceremony of the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney. Any way you cut it, Ivor would have to be one of the most prolific and successful composers in Australia, if not the world. And it's with great pleasure that we welcome him to the Mojo Radio Show. Well, thank you very much. Mate, you really were very young when you got started down the path on a musical career. Just how young were you when you got going? Um, well, look, I grew up with music in my house, so it goes back, <laughs> well, it's a photograph of me. I was born in uh, Warhope, uh, which is on the northern New South Wales coast, and uh, my parents lived in a very isolated place in a forestry settlement, four houses that were there <laughs> in uh, Belangri, and... Um, but they did, uh, but they did join the local Warhope Choir, which, believe it or not, was an incredibly strong. Uh, there's a photograph. Uh, I think there's probably around about forty or fifty people in this photograph, and um, and there am I at the age of two, sitting on the conductor's knee. So um, mm. I got dragged along to uh, all the choir rehearsals and all that sort of stuff. But my own particular uh, involvement started when I was around about six, and I by then we'd moved to Wagga Wagga, and I heard the local uh, St Andrews Heather pipe band, um, and fell in love, believe it or not, with the bagpipes, and um, proceeded to learn to play them, and made my first television appearance on the local TV, new TV station, RVN2, uh, at the age of nine, playing the bagpipe. <laughs> so do you remember, Ivor, the first musical artist that you actually heard and went, actually, I'd like to do that? You know, that's pretty tricky to pin down. Um, I can remember a real light bulb moment, though. With, uh, you obviously started... Uh, playing music, I taught myself how to play the guitar when I was around about 13. I met a couple of guys. Uh, we played in a little folk group and uh, uh, eventually, uh, of course, we all grew up and left school and uh, I remember going to a housewarming at their first uh, share house. I guess I must have been about 17 or 18, 17 maybe. And uh, there was nobody in the lounge room. Everybody was in the kitchen, as you do in parties. You know, everybody was up the back of the house in the kitchen, and uh, the lounge room was lit by candles. And I walked in, and there was the most amazing thing going on in that room. And I sat down and listened to both sides of the then only available on import, not yet a hit uh, album um, by Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And it oh, blew, wow. blew my mind just what you could do in a recording studio with. Uh, very humble stereo because yeah. uh, there was stuff flying around the room and I thought, this, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> just, just while we're on that, I'm going to throw you a quick question because I heard a great quote from the guys about that album once and it's always stuck with me and, and they said, we never actually got to hear it for the first time, meaning that, you know, you sit through the whole recording process so you never actually get that impact of hearing it completed without without prior knowledge of it. I wonder if you ever feel that way when you record. Uh, with the albums, you put such a lot of work into it and you go over and over and over and over things and so on. And I remember sort of generally the process was almost religiously the same. That was, we'd get to the end of the whole thing, we'd mix it. Um, 
I'd get a test pressing, I'd sit down, listen to it once, and then never, ever listen to it again, mm. Um, mm. which, you know, is kind of understandable, I guess, when you've spent so much time and you know that at, you've got to the point where you can't change anything. That's it. It's kind of set in stone or, or set in vinyl, basically. Um, and once you get to the point where you can't change anything, it kind of seems pointless to try and go back over it. Um, and that's what I did every time. I'd have that one final last listen when it was done and dusted and, and never kind of went back to it. It's interesting, Ivan, just to take you back to that kitchen and hearing Pink Floyd, whose sound at that time was very, very revolutionary. And you seemingly through your career, you've built a reputation for experimentation with very, very early on finding, you know, the early drum machines. Uh, you're one of the first to introduce the digital music sampler, multi-note synthesizers. I mean, you've got this reputation for being an experimenter and truly innovating. Do you, have you ever thought that maybe it came from that kitchen, that that fascination, not just with music, but with the experimentation started there and then carried with you through your career? Oh, I'm sure it did. Uh, I think, um, firstly, it was my involvement with uh, sort of being, I guess, the first to do a lot of things was completely accidental. It's only really been with hindsight that I've actually recognised um, <laughs> that there's been a pattern of that kind of thing going on from a very early early day. But, you know, at the time, there was it was just a case of there's a new invention. We, we must have one of those things. I remember, for example, uh, that we got, uh, we had a keyboard player who had uh, a whole kind of uh, bunch of stuff to, to work with, uh, but we bought a brand new thing, and this is very early on, uh, it was called the Selena String Ensemble, and it was a string synthesizer, but it, but it sort of did more than that, and it had eight sounds on it, which was outrageous at the time, mm. and I remember getting it home to my flat and plugging it in, and I had a tape recorder there, and I stayed up all night, and I wrote the song Ice House uh, using this this new brand new toy um, and you can hear me kind of changing the sounds all the way through as a kind of way of going oh what's this do what's this do what's this do <laughs> and um, and that what's was really the do? same process <laughs> applied to you know the Lynn drum machine you mentioned and, and the, uh, yeah. the Fairlight uh, sampler and it was a case of you know sitting in a room with it and going, what what does this do? And that process was actually how I ended up writing songs. Just on that, well, the segue across the songwriting and your experimentation with songs. Man of Colours, for you, was an experiment with words, wasn't it? Well, look, you know, I can kind of track um, the writing of, of lots of songs back and, and work out and remember uh, what was going on. And, and one of the things that uh, drove me all the way through was to never, ever repeat myself. In other words, never do the same thing again. And that was kind of tricky. Um, because I had to keep coming up with kind of new sets of harmony and new melodies and new um, ways of doing things and new subject matter. And um, on this particular day, I remember quite clearly I I focused on the kind of the lyric content and I thought, well, um, what would it be like if um, I wrote a chorus and, and, and the, 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 the last word of the first line became the first word of the next line and the last word of that line became the first word of the line after and so on. <laughs> and ju- just to see how it would go. And it kind of worked out, uh, I guess it's probably best to demonstrate. I did vary from that pattern, and, but it, it was enough to kind of drive me to write probably one of the fastest set of lyrics I've ever written in my life. And mm. um, uh, you can hear it best, I guess, in the second half of the chorus. I can see, see through the years, 
years of a man, a man of colours. how the pattern kind of developed and um, you know lots of songs had this kind of you know I set myself a challenge or a task that's how they that's how they work. There's no question you're recognised as one of Australia's great songwriters. Did you always have that in mind as being like was it always a dream to be able to present yourself as an artist in words as a songwriter? Um, absolutely not not and I, I can be incredibly emphatic about that, but there is, mm. um, I recognise that there are songwriters who just have to write songs and, and, and it's it's sort of, I guess, it seems to be almost therapy for them to um, be able to sit down and write a song and I'd put in that category somebody like Paul Kelly, for example, who's incredibly prolific and I cannot mm. imagine him ever not writing songs. And I, on the other hand, was completely unwitting kind of... Um, uh, I, I guess uh, responded to a situation which was that uh, we, we formed Flowers and it was my first electric band and it was formed with a bunch of guys who uh, shared a similar taste in music and we, we, we formed this band to play our favourite songs by other people. It was great fun. We played songs by David Bowie and Lou Reed and Iggy Pop and Brian Eno and uh, a whole bunch of people, T-Rex, um, and we did it you know, in pubs on a Friday and Saturday night. Um, and we got in, but we got incredibly popular at doing that. Um, and before we knew it, there were independent record companies uh, uh, looking um, at signing us up, and we attracted the uh, services of, of one of the most powerful management companies in Australia, who managed the Angels and Cold Chisel at the time, the two biggest bands in Australia. And they said, "Listen, guys." that's great, but you're not going to get anywhere unless you write your own songs. And somehow or other, I got the sort of default <laughs> task of doing that. And <laughs> You do it. <laughs> and, you know, as a result of which, I mean, at that point, I'd only ever written three songs, I think, in my kind of folk guitarist uh, era, you know, in my teens. And so it means that those first ten songs on that Flowers album, that first album, are really uh, the, the, the very first songs I ever wrote in my life. quite um, intimidating because we were, of course, playing a set full of some of the most iconic songs ever written, you know, by, by some of the most iconic artists ever written. And here was me every now and again trying to slot in one of my feeble first attempts at writing a song. Well, I have to be upfront and honest with you, Ivor, that uh, the last time I actually saw you, I was in the audience at the Queensland University at a thing called a joint effort and the flowers were headlining and get this in excess for your support act. Wow. Um, yes, in excess supported us quite a lot, as did Men, Men at Work <laughs> and Crowded House and uh, a whole lot of people. Um, and um, uh, I remember those days when it was actually quite dangerous to be a band in Queensland because, of course, oh. it, was a very rep- <laughs> <laughs> it was a very repressive government and there, were lots of, uh, there was lots of uh, stuff going on. For example, our tour manager, Larry, who's been working with us since 1986, uh, was one of the uh, university students who became part of the broadcast team of 4 Z in Queensland and they yeah, yeah. were a very subversive radio 
station for um, activists and students mm. who didn't agree with what was going on in Queensland at the time, and they were very frequently raided uh, by the police. Um, and yeah, it was there was more going on then than just you know a lot of young people going out and seeing a band. There was actually a, a political uh, agenda going on as well. I would agree with that actually. It's uh, it's funny, Robbo, because when I was going to bring this up with Ivor, that thought was going through the back of my mind. I thought, oh, I better not say too much because it was uh, they were pretty heavy gigs, and it was part of. Um, Back then, I think it was, was it four four triple Z Ivor and the, yeah. the joint efforts were all about based on that whole uni thing. Yeah, it was four triple Z and and um, and we we played up there uh, in the sort of times you can imagine this. Uh, for example, um, we played uh, a hotel in Queen Street. We supported the Stranglers, and so you know you oh, kind oh, of get wow. from a from a from a bill like that, you can kind of get the vibe on. <laughs> what was going on? It was the punk, you know, it was the height of the punk uh, revolution, and uh, these places were uh, not uh, were not favoured by the establishment at the time. They didn't like, um, you know, angry young men and women <laughs> playing uh, revolutionary music in pubs. You know, it was just uh, uh, it was uh, it was quite interesting to be up there. But it was revolutionary. I mean, I think back now, the bands like yourselves and the Sports, the Angels, and it's interesting that it was. It was kind of a revolution at the time musically, wasn't it? I remember seeing all those sorts of bands and Chris Bailey and the Saints and there was a different sound coming through, which was, you're quite right, I never really thought about it, was fueling a movement, I guess. And uh, Well, what was, what was interesting for us was that we had picked up... Um, uh, we, we're constantly picking up, and even this is before all of this, even when I was in my late teens and so on, my friends would get hold of an um, English magazine called New Musical Express or Melody Maker. They were both very mm, big NME, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, music magazines coming out of, uh, out of London, and um, they were telling us about the eruption of punk and the Sex Pistols and a whole lot of bands that joined them, the Dam, the, the Jam, the Clash, uh, and an amazing amount of activity, we thought. And so, of course, uh, all over Australia, uh, young people were putting together bands and, and before you knew it, the traditional pub um, rock scene in Australia had turned into something else. It had turned into um, uh, a, a kind of punk music scene which was incredibly active and uh, if you were in your early 20s, uh, your idea of a good time would always be to go out and see a band any night of the week and so there were an incredible number of bands and really great bands and I remember going to England and uh, arriving in London on the very first night and saying to Keith, our bass player, let's go and see a band. I mean, this is where The Cure came from. This is where, you know, all those bands came from. There must be bands everywhere. And we got the local paper out and we looked up the back and looked for a club to go and see and there was nothing. It was virtually nothing going on in London. And it took me a long while to work out, you know, English pubs are tiny little places that close at 10 o'clock at night. They're not like what we've got in Sydney or Adelaide or Brisbane or, or Melbourne. And it was really... I think that sort of uh, that tyranny of distance of uh, Australians thought that what was going on overseas was actually bigger than it really was. And in fact, I'm confidently saved at that point of time in history that probably the Australian music scene was probably the most active and energetic and big in the world. Long way from that now, isn't it, Ivan? Well, it's gone underground, I guess. Uh, but the interesting thing is I've seen this uh, through my children. I remember, for example, when I was um, in my teens uh, in high school, I was in a boys' high school of 1,200 boys and there were three 
there were three boys in the in the music uh, senior music class, and I was one of them. And we were not popular. I can tell you that it was very, very, very uncool to be a musician in that school. Um, I saw my children go through high school, and a couple of little rock bands popped up, and they were absolutely the most popular guys in the school. Um, and so things have changed. I think uh, I put it down to the internet. I put it down to, you know, mobile phones and a whole bunch of songs that you can carry around in your pocket. Um, definitely the, the, uh, the interest in music uh, is, uh, you know, a thousand times more in that generation than it was in mine. It's just that they have nowhere to, for their little bands to play and something, is going, something will change. I'm sure it will. You, you just talked about kids and I'm just curious. Um, you have said that you're very emphatic about the art of reading and writing music, which is quite old school, but you've said that it's you, – you, I think your words were, I urge you, I really urge you to learn this skill. Do you think that parents really should heed this advice – where they can either that music is an important part of a child's upbringing and particularly to be able to understand the art of it? Um, for a start, I think I'm fighting a losing battle. Um, I, think, <laughs> I, I think the the skill of reading and writing music is diminishing, it, you know, is destined to become extinct very, very quickly and I'm just seeing... Um, uh, the lack of interest in going down that road, and I still adhere to absolutely everything I've said about it. I think uh, I put it put it in very simple terms. Um, uh, if you regard uh, music as a language, uh, like any language, you've got to sit down and learn it. And once you've learned it, you can communicate very freely with other musicians. And uh, you can imagine um, uh, a situation where you're in a room with a whole lot of people and none of them speak the same language, and yet they're trying to get something collective done. Um, that's the difficulty with people who are not familiar with uh, the language of music. And uh, like um, other languages, they're best taught to children when they're quite small because uh, it's uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure science and research would back me up on this, it is much easier for young people to learn a new language than it is for people when they get a little bit older. Um, and uh, if you do that, uh, you've got an incredible advantage. For the rest of your life, you are able to communicate uh, musically with other musicians in a way that is incredibly sophisticated, very specific, um, and to try and communicate with other musicians who don't have that language is really like sitting down and drawing diagrams. It's actually very difficult. We talked about the writing process before, and I'm just curious. You've said, uh, it was an interview you did some time back, you said it became obvious that no one gets anywhere without writing stuff. What it made me think of is that in today's day and age where content is said to be a way to express ourselves either in social or a blog or in a presentation, do you, do you, do you see the same skill set that you bring as an art of a songwriter? Do you see the same skill set being brought away from music into today's life where we need to communicate that the importance of writing? Yes, I do, but sort of don't get me started on social media and communication the way it is today because um, it's going to be a very long interview if you do that. <laughs> um, I find a lot of things problematic about the uh, amount of static, I guess, that is floating about these days as a result of this you know, fabulous freedom to be able to communicate your ideas and put them down and so on and so forth. 
the music scene has changed enormously in so much as um, there was one very big obstacle when we started out, and that was the technology of recording um, was incredibly expensive, um, and there was only one way that we were actually ever going to get to make a recording, and that was to be um, so in demand um, as a live act uh, that a record company was prepared to front up the enormous amount of money that it was going to cost to be able to make a recording. When the Flowers album was recorded, it was regarded as one of the most expensive Australian albums ever made and cost $30,000, um, and that was in 1980. Um, to get to that point, we had been through an entirely rigorous filtering system whereby uh, we were only one of hundreds of bands, but uh, we'd managed to convince a record company that we were the best shot that they had out of those hundreds of bands uh, to be able to have a success. And so there was this enormous filter on uh, what would have been, you know, thousands of songwriters and thousands of songs um, that meant that, you know, only we got through and only we and a, and a relatively few other bands got through to the point to be able to even make a record. These days, anybody can make their own album in their bedroom, and, and apparently they are. And what that means is that there's just an enormous amount of music out there floating around the internet and on various um, sites like iTunes and so on. And it's very difficult to find, you know, a way to work out who is good and who is not, because clearly they're not all brilliant. Um, and so I actually find it quite tricky um, these days to to negotiate that. Tricky enough that I've kind of abandoned really the idea of trying to find out who the next David Bowie is or who the next Led Zeppelin is. Um, and so I'm not entirely sure we're better off without the filter. It's funny, isn't it? We went through, I mean, Gary and I's background is with the Triple M network for years. I think it was Gary I was discussing with the other day, we were talking about the next wave of jocks coming through and these days where you had a Doug Mulray or a, a John O'Coleman or an Ian Rogerson who'd go out to the bush and learn their craft and then come back to the capital city these days it seems all you need to do is go onto a reality tv show and pretty much once that show's over you're guaranteed a breakfast slot somewhere on a radio station you know and again there's no filter you know does this person understand radio as a medium to begin with let alone anything else uh, exactly and 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 then what you're seeing is um you know in somebody like my son who was 20 uh, uh, an incredible kind of scepticism about um, about everything that he's being fed through media. And so I had a conversation with him a number of months ago and I recommended uh, that he uh, have a look at a particular news website. It's, it's, it's one, of the, you know, one of the big papers, I guess, that's online. And his response to me was, I need to find out who the editor of this Yes. Uh, of this paper is because I want to know who, who's giving me this news and how much I can trust it. And that was a really interesting response from a 20-year-old. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that's probably what's going to happen. That is, you're going to get an entire generation of people who start to recognise the fact that uh, not all of what they're being fed is of quality and therefore mm. they're going to start... Uh, discerning in a different way than I'm used to doing, for example. Just nice. That's, that's very interesting, isn't it? That should start coming through as a trend, I reckon. Yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. And I think, um, you know, as far as music goes, I love the fact that there is a, a massive amount of energy um, 
in that generation. So, in other words, yeah. uh, what I've said to you is that the, the you know, that we're only seeing the tiniest tip of an iceberg, which is bound somewhere to break through. Um, what will be interesting for me to, is to see how they create their own revolution. And I think, um, you know, it's very easy for you us to forget that there have been revolutions associated with almost every wave of music that's kind of come to the fore. And, um, uh, you know, for example, I'm seeing lots of kind of uh, moonlight festivals uh, pop up everywhere. Uh, and there's a whole network of um, these things happening which are sort of under the radar, as it were. Um, but it's telling me that, you know, young people are really, really interested in music, and that, but it's just that they're not perhaps um, interested in kind of conforming to everybody else's idea of how they should be uh, turning up and listening to it. So... Um, you know, I'm sure that there'll be some nifty, uh, uh, ingenious promoters out there who at some point will go, hmm, you know what, there's a hole in the market. There are lots of young people who want to see music and nowhere for them to go. I was interested, Ivor, in looking back through your stuff and hearing you talk about Great Southern Land and... In anybody's language, in the music industry in our country, that is one of our anthems. And what I wanted to ask you about is that hearing you talk about it, it almost sounded as though you set yourself a challenge to see if you could. Now, we, Robbo and I have been talking about anthems and we, and we love them and we've, we've spoken to Dave Al, Al, from Albert's Music about Bon Scott writing anthems and Doc Neeson writing anthems. And they're songs that in any pub you play them and everybody knows every word. Your songs have been picked up by our tourism board and said to be the second waltzing Matilda. But it just seemed that you you actually could see what you wanted to do, but you set yourself a challenge to see whether you could do it. Would that be fair? Um, look, it's a great mystery on a number of levels, that song. Um, the first great mystery for me is why I attempted... You'd have to sort of know me uh, better, but I can say straight up that I'm a reasonably sort of conservative person. And so I was acutely aware, for example, when we were doing um, alternate weekends at the Royal Antler Hotel on the northern beaches in Sydney with Midnight Oil, who were one weekend and we were the next weekend, and and we alternated. And I was very aware of how uh, fiery their politics were and how outspoken their lyrics were. And it was kind of... Uh, the opposite end of the uh, of the scale to where I sat, which was that I wasn't going to stick my neck out um, uh, and make you know large political statements. And in fact, uh, I went to a great deal of trouble on the first album with those very first songs that I was talking about to try not to put myself in any of those songs at all, uh, to not even you know re- re- reveal anything about my own diary. And so, for me, the first great mystery of Great Southern Land is why on earth I would take on such a large subject as as writing a song about my home country, um, knowing full well, as I did at the time, that if I got it wrong, that it would, it, it would be like a nuclear bomb going off in my face. Um, I knew that if, it, if I got it wrong, it would be incredibly damaging. Um, so I'm completely mystified as to why I would do that. <laughs> it turned out all right, mate. I was going to say, the end result wasn't too bad, let's be honest. Uh, it apparently did 
<laughs> okay, and the, the sort of next part of the mystery was that it was the first. It was the first. My, my job at that time, we'd just come back from our first international tour, and my job, I knew very well, was to sit down and write the next set of songs for that difficult second follow-up album. And Great Southern Land was. I had a new set of toys to play with. I had the the Lindrum, which I'd bought in Los Angeles on that tour. It was a brand new piece of technology. Um, I had my very first eight-track tape recorder, which meant that finally I could actually make sort of meaningful demo recordings in my own um, bedroom. Um, and the very first song that I wrote was Great Southern Land, and I can remember taking that demo uh, to our managers and in turn to our uh, record label, uh, which is a very small independent uh, record label, there are only two guys running it, and everybody reacted to it straight away in a way that I just sort of was shocked by. I just, I, I sort of looked at them and said, well, you know, this is just the first of 10 songs I've got to write. And they were going, you know, blah, 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 with amazement. <laughs> and I didn't understand that reaction then, and I still don't really understand the reaction. <laughs> um, um, so it's been quite a thing, um, that particular song, um, on, on, a, on a number of levels, as you can imagine. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ivor. Do I remember hearing you tell the story with that song that it was that you did a demo and then the record company was never happy with anything you did and you ended up going back to the demo? Was there a story in there about Great Southern Land like that? What happened was that it, the uh, task of um, co-producer was given to uh, an English guy who was resident in America and he had... Um, uh, been, uh, he was a drummer and he'd been Giorgio Moroder's drummer for 10 years. In other words, he played drums on all of the big uh, Donna Summer disco hits and so on. And he was a very good drummer, great drummer. Um, and we recorded um, uh, all of the tracks for that album, including Great Southern Land, very quickly in Sydney uh, using this new piece of technology, the Lin Drum, which was a drum machine. And I was very happy with all of that. And we took it over to uh, Westlake Studios in Los Angeles, an iconic studio, um, uh, two, two rooms, um, and I had one and Michael Jackson was recording in the other. And, um, and um, it became apparent very quickly that the co-producer had quite another agenda for all these songs and that he intended replacing the Lin drum with his own drumming, with real drums. Um, he'd recently had a very big hit with one of his first productions, which was a Billy Idol album that contained Hot in the City and so on. Um, so, uh, Julie, he replaced the Lin drum on Great Southern Land with real drums, very well played. Um, and uh, true to, I guess, the the uh, the intent of the, the the Lindrums of the drum machine, um, he mixed that and sent it off to the record company. And they had, of course, heard my demo recording right from the beginning, as soon as I'd, I'd uh, produced it, and they rejected uh, this version of Great Southern Land with the real drums on it. And we mixed it three times and sent it back to them three times, and three times they rejected it, and we couldn't really work out what it was that um, they weren't happy with. Of course, it's quite easy to, to, to know that in, with hindsight. Of course, it was the drums. Um, but in frustration, um, I found another studio, a very cheap little studio uh, in Hollywood and found uh, that it had a house engineer. And um, I went over to that studio one afternoon and I said, we're going to record this song uh, from the beginning. And I had... 
uh, everything with me. I had my Lindrum and I had the Prophet 5 synthesizer and so on. And I recorded the entire recording of Great Southern Land, including all the vocals and backing vocals, in two hours. Um, and we sat down then and mixed it in two hours. And I took that tape and I sent it off to the record company and the word came back, yes, that's it, that's it, that's, that's what we're hearing on the demo. And so the version that you have on that record uh, was recorded in two hours and mixed in two hours and that was the sum total of it. Oh, but do you have a, a writing ritual that you go through even today? Um, look, uh, I don't do a lot. Honestly, I don't do a lot of writing, of course, these days, but I can remember there was a sort of peak period, I guess, where I worked with our lead guitarist, uh, Bob Kretschmer, and he was resident in Melbourne, but I had a house uh, in, the, in the city of, uh, uh, of Sydney uh, where I had a, you know, a full um, working recording studio in an old dump of a building. It was, uh, must be said, it was, uh, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was not a sophisticated environment. But, you know, I used to stay in there and then Bob would come up from Melbourne and he'd stay there with me. And we really just submerged ourselves completely in writing. And so I literally, uh, uh, this was really before the widespread use of mobile phones, we would pull the phone cord out of the wall so that uh, the managers couldn't interrupt us and nobody else could interrupt us and, you know, go to work at nine o'clock in the morning with nothing. Uh, and just start playing around with machines. And that was basically how it worked. And we'd get to the end of the day and we'd play back uh, uh, what, we'd, uh, what we'd come up with. We'd go out to dinner and come back and, you know, play that back again and go to bed and get up in the next morning and, you know, go to work. And really it took, you know, generally speaking, around about a week uh, to produce a fairly sophisticated uh, demo of a new song. Um, and that... That process became very streamlined, and I think probably it, it's most streamlined around the Man of Colours period. Where do you get your inspiration from, Ivy? Do you journal, or do you just draw on events that you, you they, notice? They come or? from all sorts of um, uh, unpredictable and bizarre places. And the thing is, you know, look, I'd love to know the answer to that question because it would make it that much easier to write songs. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I mean, they are, you know, the beginnings are so random. Uh, that I guess it's probably more about just making sure you've got an antenna that's working, really. Um, and uh, to explain that, for example, I'll tell you a story. This is uh, going back to 1985 uh, when I was producing the album that preceded Man of Colours. It was an album called Measure for Measure. In this same house uh, in the inner city, uh, uh, in a suburb called Erskineville, next door to Newtown, and you'd know where Newtown is, um, and uh, Newtown main shops were within walking distance from my house and I walked up to Newtown one day and on the way back went over a railway bridge um, and got to the other side of the railway bridge and happened to glance up and saw a street sign that said Angel Street and I straight away looked at it and went, oh my Lord, that has to be a song. And you know, a place with a name like that, Angel Street, and it became a song called Angel Street, the catchphrase of which was uh, about a girl on Angel Street. But that was sort of one of those typical but random events that sort of got me going, if you know what I mean. You know, there you are looking at a street sign called Angel Street, standing on a railway bridge, 
uh, looking down the railway lines, looking at the houses that line uh, the edge of the tracks and thinking, okay, I'm going to write a story about somebody who might live in one of those houses uh, and it's a girl. Um, and so, you know, all the songs really have completely kind of random starts like that. And I guess there was a time over a period of years where I, I part of my, my lizard brain, I guess, was um, co- constantly watching or listening for something that would produce that sort of trigger. It wasn't always like that, though, was it, Ivor? Because Electric Blue was almost a hit for Hall & Oates, is that right? Electric Blue was um, a far more... Uh, you know, without putting any derogatory sense on it, it was far more clinical process, I guess. Um, but that came out of a completely chance meeting. Uh, like we were touring, uh, I think um, it would, would have been Primitive Man. So we're talking about 1981 here or 82. And I was sitting in Adelaide Airport uh, uh, waiting for the luggage to arrive. We were about to play in Adelaide that night at the Severton Town Hall. Um, and a fellow with a moustache walked over to me and said, hi, I'm John Oates from Hall and Oates. Um, we played in the Theberton Town Hall last night. I've just, I've just bought your album and I love it. Um, thanks very much and shook my hand and walked off. And it was John Oates from Hall and Oates that um, was obviously listening to our album and I was absolutely blown away, obviously. Um, and many years later, we were touring in America uh, and the phone rang uh, in the, in the bar of a hotel that I was staying in uh, and the barman handed me the phone and on the other end of it was John Oates saying, we have to write songs together. And I said to him, well, you know, I'm in the middle of a tour and I'll wait till the end of the tour and so well, I've got to go back to Australia. Oh, well, I'll come to Australia. Um, and he did. And we spent a week together in that same uh, dump of a building in, in Erskineville um, in Sydney, uh, him playing with his Lindrum 9000, which he'd brought out from America with him, and um, uh, me playing with the Fairlight, which was uh, my main uh, uh, tool of trade at that point, and uh, produced Electric Blue, which was still really only half finished by the time he left. But I remember him very clearly standing in the doorway as he was about to leave in, in a taxi for his hotel room in the airport, uh, saying to me, uh, you must record this and put it out as a single because if you don't, tell me and Hall & Oates will record it and put it out as a single and it will be a hit. And he was absolutely emphatic about it. He knew. Um, I didn't know. I certainly didn't know. Uh, And he was dead right. It became an American top ten hit. Something you just said, Ivan, was when asked about your writing process, you reflected back to some of these previous albums. What about today? So you, you've been a prolific writer of all different sorts of genres of music. Today, as it stands, how do you express your creativity today? Are you still creating? Are you still writing? Or is it being presented in a different way today? Um, well, as I said it before, I'm not the sort of person who needs to kind of uh, undergo thera- writing therapy, as it were. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it may sound strange, but I'm, I'm probably most effective when I'm given a commission. In other words, um, well, I'll, I'll give an example of that. I 
gone off and gone on a very big tangent from around about 1995. I'd gone off in a completely different direction and I was uh, writing music for, uh, for example, for the Millennium Celebration. It took me a year to put together a 25-minute piece that was the centrepiece of the Sydney Millennium um, uh, Celebration on Sydney Harbour. Um, and uh, then that in turn, that particular performance went out to about three and a half billion people on television. And one of those people was Peter Weir, iconic Australian film director, who uh, at a certain point when he was on location uh, filming uh, in America, rang me and said, uh, you know, that music you did for the millennium, I want something like that for my movie. And that resulted in a film score for Master and Commander with the, the Russell Crowe movie. Uh, which in turn led to uh, a very big score for uh, Australia's largest um, and most expensive mini-series. It was a two-part mini-series. Um, so I went off in this peculiar direction, and I hadn't written or thought about writing songs for a long time. Uh, and then a friend of mine called me and said, um, we're working on the opening and closing ceremonies of the, uh, of, the, of the Asian Games. And if you don't know what the Asian Games is, then uh, put it this way, it's got a bigger budget than the Sydney Olympics. Um, and we need a song. And uh, we need a song for the advertising campaign to go with, with it that's going to go onto television. And so in due course, uh, he sent me a whole lot of information about uh, Doha, Qatar, which is where they were holding these, these games and the cultural background and... Uh, the sorts of things that they wanted in this song. And I duly produced a song, having not written a song for years and years and years and years, I gave them this song and uh, it wasn't used for the advertising campaign. In fact, it ended up in the opening ceremony as one of the showpieces of the whole opening ceremony, which was, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, so it was a success. And then I didn't write another song again for years and years and years. And years. In fact, I don't think I've written one since. Um, so it's kind of peculiar with me. I need to really have something in front of me where there's a kind of demand for me to actually sit down and do that. But that's part of the creative process, isn't it? I mean, that's just a we, – we talked about a guy called DJ Shadow recently on the show a couple of weeks ago, Ivor, and he said that he needs to give himself, uh, like you say, a commission and a deadline. Otherwise, he just never sits to write. But once he knows it's the first day of summer – that's what I write, and I'm going to have something done within a month. He does his best work, so it's it, it's an interesting thing. It's that that demand upon yourself almost puts a deadline. Do you find that then helps you with your observations and your listening for ideas? Do you find you become more attuned then, like you're more switched to it? Oh, there's there's a there's a, a an on and off switch, I think, and um, uh, the other thing that I can. Um, be fairly confident about is that uh, I never wrote uh, while I was on tour. Um, I, I had sort of two complete brain departments, which one of which was I'm now performing and I'm on tour, and the other mm. uh, which was I'm now isolated and sitting in a room and I'm going to write something. Um, and they never, ever coincided. There was one very notable uh, exception to that, and that was uh, that we got to England having had a very uh, a big success with our very first album. We'd been uh, touring all over Australia. We toured in New Zealand and it was an enormous success and we were signed to an international company and they said, uh, come over to England and um, go on a tour to promote it. You're going to England, you're going to Canada and then the whole of North America. And we got to London and our manager said, okay, 
your, your album came out a good six months ago in Australia. That everybody in Australia is going to forget about you. You need what's referred to as an interim single. And for those who don't know what that means, it's a single that comes out that's not on any particular album. So they needed this song to come out and be on the radio to bridge the gap between the first album and what was to become later on, of course, the second album. And so this was completely foreign to me. I was sitting in an apartment with, sharing an apartment with our uh, one and only roadie in in London um, with the task of writing a song. And I had a very minimal uh, little set of equipment with me and um, sat down and wrote uh, a song called Love in Motion. And that was recorded in London and... um, that came out in Australia and fortunately did the job of, of being a, a successful interim single. And that is the only time that I've ever written a song while I was on tour. Can I tell you it was also the first single I ever bought? Really? That's amazing. It was indeed. It- it's interesting hey. because uh, uh, my son is now 20, he's a musician, and the, uh, he surprised me a couple of weeks ago by saying, you know, Love and Motion is my favourite song, and I thought, oh, that's incredibly oh, wow. interesting. Ivor, in your, I'm always interested when I speak to musicians, in your quiet moments, do you pick up the guitar and lose yourself in the guitar where it's just you and the guitar in almost this zen or meditative state? Or are you the sort of guy who just wants to sit quietly by himself, look out at the ocean from your beautiful home and enjoy the stillness and silence? How, how do you just find that moment of internal reflection? So I've been working with Paul Gilday, our lead guitarist now for, you know, pushing 30 years. And I know, uh, that, and he's an extraordinary guitarist. And um, uh, I know that, as a matter of kind of instinct, uh, almost a reflex, uh, that he will have guitars in his house and he will, you know, just spontaneously pick one up and start playing and fool around and, and whatever, not necessarily lose himself in it, but just it's kind of, you know, one of those things, that, you know, it's just part of his day, I guess. And that is exactly not me <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> I, actually ha- I actually have to make myself... Um, pick up a guitar every now and again just to kind of stay in touch with it because I know that we've got shows coming up um, and that I can't uh, uh, just front up uh, completely cold and expect that you know my hands are going to do the right thing. Um, so for me, it's a case of I need to practice. So I'll actually make myself put the guitar in my bedroom and you know I'll stare at it in the evening as I'm watching television going, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta pick. I gotta pick that thing up and get some practice in. I really should. I really should pick that thing up. It is bizarre. I know. Before I hand to Robbo um, to finish us up, mate, um, we do a segment called the Lessons of Rock, and Robbo and I, coming from our background in radio and Triple M and the Halcyon days of Uncle Doug and so on, we we trawl through the great artists, writers, and we find lessons that we think we can take from those artists to share with our audience. And I'd be curious to know what's a great lesson of rock through your your live career now spanning 40 years as an artist. What's the lesson of rock that you can take from looking back for 40 years to share with somebody to make their life better, get their mojo working? Um, I guess the, the lesson of uh, 
of rock for me is an often asked question, which is all about, you know, the kind of decadent lifestyle of rock and roll bands and musicians. And certainly, um, you know, we had a lot of fun and, you know, I got a load of stories and whatever. But one thing never, ever, ever left my brain. Um, and that was sort of learnt the very hardest ways quite, um, quite early on. And that is, um, if you're in a rock band, there is no understudy. There is nobody that can front up that next night when you've been out partying all night and talking over loud music in a club and you have no voice left. Uh, there is nobody else that can get up and actually sing your songs for you. Um, so um, over the years, we did uh, blow out uh, a few shows along the way when I was just incredibly sick, um, but it happened very, very, very rarely. And I guess um, one of the things that... Um, kind of, I think, it contributed to the success of the band is that it has been an incredibly consistent live band. And the way that works is that uh, all of the guys in this band, uh, every single one of them, have incredibly professional uh, attitude towards being able to deliver on the night. Uh, it is not an excuse to just go partying, basically. It's hard work. It's gold robber. Gold, absolute gold, I think. Rocktober gold. Thank you very much. I just think that's such a great takeaway for regardless of being a musician, Ivor. It's, it's something we can take into every aspect of our life and uh, I think that really is gold. It's a great way to uh, to segue into Robbo. Do you want to uh, hit uh, hit Ivor with the big question, mate? Are we going to do, do a nifty 90? I think we should, don't you? Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's nifty 90. The previous 40 minutes or so has all been leading up to these few questions. These are, these are the really tough ones, okay? Okay. I'm going to give you 90 seconds. I'm going to fire you a bunch of questions. Just rapid fire answers, first thing that comes into your head, okay? Excellent. All right, here we go. Favourite instrument? The oboe. At the oboe? The oboe. At, at the moment. At the moment. Nice. I'm having a, a reunification with the oboe, which I hated most of my life as I was playing it, but there you go. There you go. All right. Mate, there, there, there's a sign for the wall. I'm having an oboe moment. Having an oboe moment. <laughs> <laughs> when are you at your most creative, Ivor? Um, when I'm in something that looks like a workshop, um, in other words, a studio, I have to be in um, an incredibly isolated uh, environment and know that I'm not going to get interrupted uh, and that's the only way I can do it. I, I, I go into a bubble, basically. That's the way I work. The last book that you read that inspired you? On my 40th birthday, I asked my parents to give me uh, the entire works of Charles Dickens. Um, and I've got a beautiful, um, very old uh, collection of, of those books. And uh, one of the books that influenced me most, I think, of that collection, I studied in my latter years at high school, and it was Charles Dickens' Bleak House. And in part, only in part, uh, that kind of gave me a vibe that turned into the song Ice House. Wow. Uh, your favourite sporting team? Um, I'm not a big one for sport, I've got to say. Uh, no, I have to pass on that one, yeah. I reckon. Okay, bing bong, move on. Cats or dogs? <laughs> I don't have a dog, I don't have any pets, I don't have any uh, uh, dependents uh, immediately here. Kind of, that's the way I like to keep it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> have you got a Have you got a morning ritual? What's the first thing you do in a morning? Every morning? Oh, uh, look, coffee's got to be well up there. I think. Yeah, um, I think yeah can't really there. function. Can't really function without um, at least one, possibly two cups of coffee. Yeah. Greatest moment of your life so far? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, Oh, look, uh, as much trouble as they are, you know, uh, the arrival of my children would have to be, mm -hmm. um, would, ha would have to be up there. Um, and, 
I'm only now starting to recognise that after twenty something or other years, they're always going to be um, uh, they're always going to be tricky. But there you go. <laughs> right, two more. Uh, what's one is what's one unessential thing in your life at the moment that you could get rid of? Uh, I've given up surfing, so I've got about wow. I don't know how many boards I have. Um, but way too many, taking up a lot of room in the garage. Surfing's yeah. unessential. No, not anymore. Look, I had an operation on my sinuses in 2000, which kind of went wrong and sort of ended my um, life as a waterman, which was yeah. kind of oh. sad. But then, you know, you've got to move on sometimes, I guess. True. All right, last one. What's what's one song that gets Ivor Davies' mojo going? Oh, gee, that's a really interesting one. Um, uh, look, it's got to be something by Radiohead, I'd say. Um Right. Uh, uh, I could probably name about 20 radio head songs that would do that for right. me. We'll, <laughs> we'll pick one and play it. <laughs> yeah. um, anything from the Benz or um, OK Computer would do me fine. Thank you. go. Robbo's Nifty 90 done and dusted. Is that another achievement for you all, Ivor? <laughs> Sorted. Excellent. Now, Ivor, you are heading out with the band. Where can we find out more about you, Ice House, the dates, the tour, the venues? Where should we go? Uh, it's pretty easy. We've got a website um, and that's easy enough to find, but um, probably the Facebook page. We've got a lot of Facebook followers and our Facebook page is actually run um, out of America by our uh, international fan club. Um, and they're, they're very, uh, what's the word, enthusiastic, I guess. In other words, it's updated very, very regularly, and so all of the information that you need about tour dates um, is on our Facebook page and includes links to the various ticket outlets where you can get tickets. Um, some of the shows, believe it or not, even as far forward as February next year, are sold out, and so... Uh, I put in a shameless plug here, folks. Make sure you get your tickets soon because they're selling fast. Yeah, absolutely. Highly recommended. So next year, the tour is celebrating 40 years of live performances and they're going pretty much across Australia. Um, but also for our Kiwi friends, we've got some listeners over there in New Zealand as well. So um, and if you're an international guest, it'd be a good time to hook in a trip to Australia, come and see the band play. And something I'm, I've been curious about, I've just to finish this up very quickly, but it must be... I've got, I've got some mates who are 26, 27 years old, and they, whenever I get in their car, they're always playing music from the 70s, the 80s, and the very early 90s, and they will know every word to all of your catalogue. It must be quite humbling in a way to stand on stage and see a number of generations in an audience singing the words to your song. Are you finding the music is now travelling through generations? Most certainly it is, and in fact... Um, we had a fairly um, emphatic demonstration of this. Uh, we hadn't played for a very long time, I think something like 15 or 16 years. And uh, when we got back together again, and that was probably about uh, four and a half years ago, one of the first offers that came up was from the promoter of a Sydney festival called Homebake. And um, you'll know this festival has been around for many, many years. Uh, it happens in the domain in the middle of Sydney in the park area there. Uh, and so the promoter came to us and he said, we want you guys to play at Homebake. And we said, yeah, that'd be great. Thank you very much. Oh, and by the way, we want you to just focus on your very first album. Okay. 
And then he said, and also, by the way, most of the audience will be in their 20s. And I said to the promoter, are you completely insane? That first album came out 30 years ago. Most of, these, most of that audience won't have been born when that album came out. How is that going to possibly work? <clears throat> and I have to say, I was probably uh, the most nervous I've ever been in my life, um, uh, walking onto that stage in front of that audience of 20,000, 20-something-year-olds. 20 um, and straight away... Uh, our bass player came over to me around about the sort of second or third song in and nudged me and said, have you had a look at the front row? See how many people are singing your lyrics? And in fact, they did. They sang the entire set from beginning to end. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. And I thought about it a lot um, afterwards and thought, you know, this is really the power of the internet and technology um, that... Uh, you know, because of the way that music is so accessible these days that, you know, people of that generation have gone back and gone over the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as you said, in a way that there was no way that I could do when I was 20. Um, I, by the time I was got to 20, I reckon I probably owned about four LPs um, and they were all fairly current. And so um, I think it's absolutely amazing. Um, what is even more amazing for us, I guess, is that a lot of these... 20-year-olds uh, are incredibly surprised by how much of a rock band we are because, um, comparatively speaking, the recordings, I guess, are a lot more uh, clinical and tame uh, than that band that started out as a punk band with synthesizers. Um, and so a lot of that generation who are seeing us live for the first time are actually quite surprised by the experience of uh, those uh, live concerts because they are much more high energy um, than you, you'd expect if you were just listening to the recordings. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Over, I took my 10 and 12 year olds to see ACDC earlier in the year. And I reckon out of the set that maybe went for, I don't know, an hour and a half, say, I reckon they probably, they, they probably sang lyric to about 70% of the songs as they were yep. performing. Yeah. I can I can believe it without any difficulty whatsoever. It's uh, it's 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 fascinating and it's and it's also very invigorating to know that your music is sort of travelling so far and so mm, wide. Mm, must be. Well, Ivor, it has been an absolute treat, mate. I I love hearing you share your stories. I think the the stuff you share, the the thoughts, the experiences has just been gold. Thank you so much for your time, mate. We know you always get a lot going on. It's been a real privilege to have uh, have you on the show, um, isn't it, Robbo? It's a great show. Indeed. Thank you very much indeed for having me. It's been great fun. Yeah, it feels good. It's Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. Ice House were definitely one of the first bands to get me into rock and roll music. I remember sitting down in my room in years five or six or something and playing We Can Get Together and just thinking, wow, this is cool. So um, nice to talk to Ivor. And for people who are around the world listening to the Mojo radio show, we now have people over the United States and Turkey, Italy. We've got people in Serbia, mm. Canada, New Zealand, Indonesia, and our, we've got a big fan base, obviously, in Pakistan. Mm. Fiji. True. And for those people, I guess we all have iconic bands we grew up with and we hear the music and it takes us back to a moment in our life, a moment in time. And for many Australians and probably people around the world who are into Ice House, Ivor Davies' voice and some of the iconic tracks that he's written, and we have he actually has written anthems 
Mm. that had become iconic in Australian music. It was uh, quite a tribute to have Iva on to close Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show, wasn't it? It was a big deal also to get hold of him, I agree, absolutely. Mm. And, um, you know, you think about the songs like uh, Great Southern Land, I reckon if you took it to a vote, there'd be a good a good percentage of the Australian population who'd say, "Let's have that as our as our national anthem," as opposed to "Advance Australia Fair." Don't you? Without doubt. March, and so in the honour of rock and roll, it has been proclaimed that the tenth month shall be forever known as Rock October. Hi, this is Marsha Hines, and it's good to have Rock October back. There's another Australian music legend, Marsha Hines. And what a wonderful lady she is too. I mean, Marsha has been at the top of her game as as an Australian music diva for four decades. Amazing voice. Absolutely. You know how far back that promo goes? That was back, recorded back in 1971 at 2SM before the days of FM. There you go. That's how old that one is. Okay. Thanks to Hugh Jury for uh, that. Let's not show our age too much. <laughs> Rocktober remembers. Gone but not forgotten. Now, Robbo, are you familiar with a lady called Maya Angelou? Do you know what? I wasn't till about an hour ago when you introduced me to her, but I am now. Yes. Maya Angelou was the first black American lady to ever speak at a presidential inauguration, which is quite topical for what's going on in America right now. Yeah. Maya was an author, an American poet. She was a civil rights activist who personally knew Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Maya Angelou died in 2014, and I found this beautiful. I've always been a massive fan of her writing, her philosophies, her radio show, and she did this interview with Dave Chappelle. Now, Dave Chappelle is a very well-known comedian who made his name not only through being funny, but also he walked away from a contract for $8 million and he disappeared basically off the face of comedy for a long, long time because he refused to sell himself out to the man. Here's an interview with Dave Chappelle and Maya Angelou. One of the things I've learned is to don't pick it up and don't lay it down. When someone says, you're the best, you're the greatest, you're the most wonderful, you're the finest and the artist of the time and blah, blah, you say, ah, if you pick that up, you also have to pick it up when they say, you're nothing, you lost it, you used to be, and what happened? So I don't pick it up, I don't lay it down. Let me tell you why. Ah. Let me say this, let me tell you why now. John Singleton was doing his movie, Poetic Justice. And he asked, would I uh, come out to Los Angeles and do a cameo? I walked out of my trailer that morning, and there was one young man cursing, like you could see the blue come out of his mouth. And then he and another fellow, they were at each other's throats, 
they had each other's clothes. So I went up to one young man and I said, excuse me, may I speak to you? He said, I wouldn't give I said, I understand that. But may I speak to you for a minute? He said, if these move, I said, no. I've heard that before. But do you know how important you are? Do you know that our people slept, lay spoon fashion in the filthy hatches of slave ships, in their own and in each other's excrement and urine and menstrual flow so that you could live 200 years later? Do you know that? Do you know that our people stood on auction blocks so that you could live? He said, I said, no, but I just wonder, when's the last time anyone told you how important you are? And he started to, to, the tears started to come out. I had no Kleenex or anything, so I just wiped his face with my hands and talked to him. And Miss Janet Jackson came. She said, Angelo, I don't believe you actually talked to Tupac Shakur. So I didn't know Tupac Shakur. I didn't know Sixpack. <laughs> I have never heard the name. Because it, in my life and my age group, you understand? It just didn't, I didn't know that. Tupac's mother wrote me a letter. She said her son had called her right after I had spoken to him. And she wanted to thank me. She said, you may have saved his life. And I thank you, Dr. Angela. It ain't about black or white, cause we're human. I hope we see the light before it's ruined. My ghetto gospel. Cause we to follow me. Wow, what an inspirational lady. Uh, she's amazing. And I, I think people could take a lot of heart out of that, that you don't pick it up, you don't lay it down. Yeah. I think there's a lot in that where we... We revel in the good times, but then we struggle with the bad times. We need to even ourselves out. And it's just a beautiful piece of philosophy. But the other thing I loved is just the power of loving a human being and treat them as a human being, mm. not a celebrity, mm. not on a different level, but just... And that story of Tupac, I just find that to be absolutely beautiful. Baby, I don't trip and let it fade me from out of the front pan. We jump into another form of slavery. Very unmojo show, though, isn't it? A little bit country, a little bit rock and roll, and a tiny bit of hip hop. <laughs> oh, I'd say a little bit country, yeah. a little bit rock and roll, and totally gangster. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that. Hi, Robbo. I remember you from back in the 90s at the House of M's. I was the security guard at the bottom of the stairs. Mate, fantastic to see you guys bringing back Rocktober. All the best, guys. Rocktober on the Mojo Radio Show. It's something unpredictable, but in the end it's right. I hope you had the time of your life. Folks, that brings us to a close for Rocktober 2016 on the Mojo Radio Show. We hope you've enjoyed the journey. We hope we brought some a smile to your face, a little bit of inspiration, some knowledge, some stuff that you can, when you put the rubber to the road, you've actually got something to help get your mojo working in and out of work. Well done, Robbo. Production, 
unquestionably some of the best production in podcasts in the world right now, mate. It was sensational. Yeah, it's been good fun, has it? Can you believe we're here already at the end? It's gone, it's crazy. Seems like only last week we were talking to Tate. And they are, they've been big shows, folks. We uh, It's the first time we've done long form, which yeah. is different to what we would normally do. But uh, we figured the guests have been so good that you would hang with us. So thank you for hanging in. Mm. Thanks for the comments. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for keeping our mojo working. But uh, with people like Tate Fletcher, Ivor, Ryan Munsey, Charlie Teo, mm. and our good mate Marco Mendoza for the Dead Days, he's yeah. a massive lineup of guests and great music, great promos, good fun, bit of comedy, bit of laughter. Mm. And we thought we'd leave you with just a beautiful, inspirational piece we found on YouTube. And this is from the soundtrack to the Gladiator movie with Russell Crowe. The song is called Now We Are Free. And the voices over the top are really quite distinctive. You'll hear Muhammad Ali. You'll hear Yo Rocky. And you'll hear a piece read that is a speech from Nelson Mandela. I'll put a link to the actual clip in the show notes. But we thought this is a great way to close what's been a pretty massive month for us on the show to get your mojo working. And hopefully that you'll finish Rocktober and get after it and make something happen and show the world just how great you are. It's something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you have the time of your life. That's it, Robbo. We're out. Happy Rocktober, folks. Happy Rocktober. We're out. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. beyond measure. I'm going to show you how great I am. Last night I cut the light off in my bedroom, hit the switch, was in the bed before the room was dark. I'm going to show you how great I am. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. I'm going to show you how great I am. This kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody ever knew. I'm going to show you how great I am. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. I'm going to show you how great I am. All of you chumps are going to bow when I whip him. All of you. I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm going to show you how great I am. But somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. You let people stick a finger in your face and tell you you're no good. And when things got hard, you started looking for something to blame, like a big shadow. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody. It's going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done. Because if you're willing to go through all the battling you got to go through to get to where you want to get, who's got the right to stop you? I mean, maybe some of you guys got something you never finished, something you really want to do, something you never said to somebody, something. And you're told no, even after you pay your dues, who's got the right to tell you that? Who? Nobody. It's your right to listen to your gut, and ain't nobody's right to say no. After you earn your right to be what you want to be and do what you want to do. Now, 
Now, if you know what you're worth, then go out and get what you're worth. But you gotta be willing to take the hit and not point fingers saying you ain't where you wanna be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. our light, not our darkness that most frightens us. If playing small does not serve the world, there is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were all meant to shine as children. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. All of you chumps are gonna bow when I whoop him. All of you, I know you got him. I know you got him picked. But the man's in trouble. I'm gonna show you how great I am. Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time. <laughs>